Hi, I'm Christian Gray with another Kinism FAQ. Previously in this series, we looked at whether Kinism is racist and whether it is scriptural. Today, we look at the historical case for Kinism. We recall that Kinism is a preferential love and commitment shown to one's family and extended family. Because we Kinists desire the preservation and future of our people, we forbid behavior that is destructive to those goals, namely interracial marriage and interracial adoption. One of the most powerful arguments used against multiculturalists, anti-Kinists, is that they deny the universal practice of the West and the Church prior to the 1950s, when the social Marxists began to rapidly promote forced integration, the goal of which, by the way, was never equality and justice for all races, but death to whites by granting non-whites access to our women. No documentation is really needed to prove that prior to the civil rights movement, folks married within their own race. They adopted within their own race. Families, churches, and nations were blood-based. They were racial. Mixed unions were extremely rare, exceptions to the rule, and unanimously discountenanced by societies. Laws prohibiting these unions were on the books everywhere. The modern fad of whites adopting unprivileged blacks and Chinese invalids was unthinkable. The Christian West never let its amicable behavior and generous charity toward other races alter its gene pool or family tree. Is kinism historical? Patently so. While some anti-kinists deny this history or pretend that it doesn't exist because the name kinism isn't attached to it, and others, of course, simply proceed with pure ad hominem attacks, there is at least one possible objection that merits a response. Some will say that just because something was widely practiced doesn't mean it's normative. Old doesn't mean right. Neither does novelty, we reply, and that's really our point, namely to make the new kids on the block show why so many for so long were so wrong. Of course, folks can be misled for many years. When Protestants, for example, made the case why centuries of Catholics were wrong, one of their key arguments was that Catholics had deviated from their doctrinal roots. By the way, despite their crucial theological differences, Catholics and Protestants practiced kinism. But where is the argument that we kinists are departing from the glory years when multiculturalism held the day? Of course, we wouldn't exist to argue our position were multiculturalists anything but entirely novel. There can simply be no historical support for anti-kinism when the societies of recorded history commonly practice the opposite. I confess that I was initially against using this type of argument because it is true that historical consensus does not necessitate moral validity. But when something which is practiced naturally and peacefully for ages is followed by a newfangled objection that slanders the practice, demonizes the practice, censors the remaining guardians of the practice, and uses legislation, media, entertainment, and public education to discourage and replace the practice, we must challenge the malignant objection rather than the benign practice. This principle especially applies when the alternative to the traditional practice necessarily reaps such dire and irreversible results as racial genocide. Yet because most Christians can't find a decisive Bible verse to challenge them, they spurn and betray the historical legacy of their ancestors and capitulate to a deviant social phenomenon. Would they need such a conclusive Bible verse to oppose the pro-sodomy agenda forced upon them with these same dirty tactics? Isn't the strong heterosexual history of humanity 
and the unnatural ethnocidal nature of sodomy a sufficient reason to stay the course? Apparently not. Short-sighted Christians will swiftly reject this historical argument and pathetically join their anti-Christian counterparts in using liberal Marxist language to denounce their own brothers. They call us Kenneth's names like racists and haters, or sometimes just denounce us as backwards and ignorant. But we've quickly learned that when egalitarians sling slurs and command us to get with the future and to quit living in the past, that's a clue they have no rational rebuttal. They're merely showing their blind preference for progressive and politically correct ideals, failed ideals with no proven track record because they radically diverge from the tested and workable social model of our real history. This reminds me of a moment recorded at the recent American Renaissance Conference when Richard Spencer was talking with an Antifa moron who wants to destroy what he doesn't believe exists. After Richard shows how white nationalists promote the peaceful existence of all peoples, the enlightened fool says, There's no such thing as race. You guys represent an antiquated system that has no place in the 21st century. Richard chuckles and asks, You guys are the future? It's very odd how anti-Kenists will appeal to the primacy of faith over race when defending mixed marriages. The Bible only restricts marriage partners to believers, they say. Yet they arrogantly dismiss the testimony of millions of Christians over millennia in favor of the views of rank atheists, humanists, and Christ-haters of recent decades. These are traitorous hypocrites. If anti-Kenists wish to denounce this grand history, we can use another rhetorical argument. Let's remind them that whatever insults and vilifications they use against us, they use against their own heroes. In other words, anti-Kenists essentially denounce the faith of the men whose shoulders they stand upon. Consider this OPC pastor's response. Quote, Kenism appears to be one of those odd systems which pop up from time to time among those with a tendency toward conspiracy theories, an overinflated sense of entitlement, and an unhealthy victim mentality. It being about as fringy as fringe can be, any knowledge I or another OPC pastor might have on the movement would come entirely from internet research. Notice all the ad hominem. Well, you're wrong, Pastor. Kenism can't have just popped up when it's been the social model for millennia, and when its converse became popularized relatively recently with the adulterous, plagiarist, communist, reverend Martin Luther King. Ethnocentrism and consanguineous marriages were ubiquitous long before internet research was available. I bet every theologian and church father this pastor has studied repudiated the racial amalgamation this pastor advocates. He continues, The central tenet of kinism seems to be that God wants people to keep themselves with, within strict ethnic groupings. Were this so, one would expect the Lord to have mentioned this someplace in the scriptures. End quote. Well, if keeping to oneself means obeying the fifth commandment and honoring the authority of our fathers by marrying according to one's tribal interests, then this OPC pastor has missed the history of the Israelites and the history of all biblical monarchical kingdoms. Monarchies are nations based on heredity, my friend. Patriarchal nationalism is racial, amigo. See our other FAQ, Is Kenism Scriptural for Other Scriptural Arguments? If keeping to oneself means avoiding all relationship with racial outsiders, this pastor has lousy internet researching skills. And if a pastor can't use Google to find the rebuttal to that criticism, how did he get through the great works assigned in seminary and become a reverend? He says, quote, I hope you, as I do, find kinism not only personally distasteful 
and morally repugnant, but fundamentally at odds with the gospel itself, end quote. Again, that which you say about those among the resurgence of kinism, you say about the original advocates. Forget the adjective kinism for a minute, and just remember that all of the church practiced that which we call kinism, and none of your gospel heroes agreed with your racial suicidal views, especially with your arrogant suggestion that the gospel began 60 years ago. They would find you and the brown mulatto bastards you wish to spawn repugnant. Please stop calling us heretics. What about the creeds and the confessions? Creeds and confessions may be silent on whether one can marry a person from a tribe six concentric circles removed from their tribe in order to produce mongrels that look nothing like their relatives, but the silence is deafening. The absence from creeds and confessions of a defense of kinism is greater evidence that it has always been widely accepted as non-controversial. Remember that creeds and confessions are largely responsive documents, often written under great persecution, in reaction to popular or dangerous heresies. You don't typically respond to that which is unchallenged. The presence of historical debates about whether to destroy racial diversity through amalgamation would only indicate that some actually desired that. But until our insane times, none did. Thus the absence of debates or confessional codification about that which all believed to be normal and good. However, Christian defenses of racial segregation do appear when kinism is significantly challenged by a tyrannical government. Dabney and the Southern Agrarians opposed the incipient multiculturalist agenda of the North on the grounds that if whites were polluted with blacks, the offspring would be incapable of civilization, but only fit for subjugation and oppression. It was enough that men like Dabney didn't want to see their people mongrelized out of influence and out of existence. Jim Crow era pastors appealed to the kind after kind language of Genesis and Leviticus to forbid racial integration and amalgamation. They appealed to Numbers 36 and to the general authority of the Father to defend intra racial marriage. The history of theological arguments is there. Westminster Large Catechism, question 127 What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? This question is about the fifth commandment. And the answer is the honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence and heart, word and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, and here's the key part, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to, defense and maintenance of their persons and authority. It continues, but how can it possibly be shown that a father's commandment to marry within one's race is sinful? No sin is commanded here, just as no sin is commanded when a father forbids his daughter from marrying a man twice her age, or a convict, or a man that has no job, or no legs. Yet if the history of the church was monolithically Eurocentric and patriarchal, we can only conclude that these fathers either accidentally or intentionally prescribed kinist marriages for their daughters. Some may acquiesce and affirm the strong kinist history of the West, but respond that our ancestors' practice was based on cultural inertia or extra-biblical custom, rather than a Christian doctrinal belief. But saying that their practice wasn't seated in belief because it's not codified in confessions is like saying that their aversion to cannibalism was accidental. I'd also advise anti-kinist Christians to consult the commentaries of Augustine, Calvin, and Matthew Henry on texts like Genesis 11, Acts 17, 
in Deuteronomy 32, which speak of God's dividing the nations. The key here is to understand what these theologians understood, namely that nations in the Bible are ethnostates. Since we're discussing the history of kinism, we must mention the founding of America. John Jay, signer of the Declaration of Independence and first Chief Justice of the United States, wrote this, quote, Providence has been pleased to give this one connected country to one united people, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs, end quote. That's essentially kinism, our American history, not hate. Of course, the Constitution's preamble itself says that the founders wanted to secure the blessings of liberty to, quote, our selves and our posterity. If the founders at the Constitutional Convention looked like those at a modern United Nations meeting, then anti-Kenists would have an argument. But they were all honkies. What happened then? How did we go from a people who banned interracial marriage, looked upon it as we look upon sodomy today, and understood it as Marxist, to a people that celebrates it and detests those that don't? In closing, let's shift from the history of kinism to a brief part of the history of anti-kinism, which is the more germane question anyway. I intimated earlier that entertainment, legislation, and media are massive propaganda machines used to promote multiculturalism and to blackball white advocates. We'll only look at the area of public education to show how hostile foreign elites molded anti-kinists into what they are today. I'll be paraphrasing some information from Chapter 1 of Jared Taylor's excellent book, White Identity, Racial Conscience in the 21st Century. Because of the aforementioned extended and unassailable history, demonstrating that people stubbornly prefer company and companions that are like themselves, in the 1940s and 50s, academics and social theorists actually had to develop strategies to bring blacks and whites together. These strategies were known as contact theory. Quoting Taylor, many believe that integration for children was so important that the opposition of parents should be ignored, end quote. That's pretty radical right there. A Columbia Law School professor wrote that because children should be protected from the tyranny of their parents, they should be required to attend schools that are not entirely controlled by the parents, where they could be exposed to a broader range of value options than their parents could hope to provide. Basically, he said that our folks, because they were like their ancestors in the historical Christian West, were racist whites whose malignant hearts needed reformed via enlightened, integrated education. Basically, these elites knew that white adults, our grandparents, would not integrate willingly, so they aggressively and coercively went after their kids, our parents. It started as passive desegregation where schools had to admit those with whom parents didn't want their kids educated. Then in 1968, bureaucrats decided that schools had to be purposely integrated with mandatory race-based student assignment. In 71, they began to bus in the blacks. What do you think happened? Did it click for white Christian parents? Did they suddenly realize they were racists who had been perverting the gospel? Did pastors call for national repentance? No. Whites abandoned the public schools. Taylor notes that just in seven years... Nine high schools in Baltimore went from all-white to all-black. That's the Yankee, enlightened North, by the way. He writes, in Montgomery, Alabama, Sidney Lanier High School, which used to educate the state's elite, had almost no white students left 
10 years after the first black enrolled in 1964. Astounding. The whites that did remain naturally practiced self-segregation, just as they do now. Here's Taylor. Students gravitated to different sports teams and clubs, ate lunch at segregated tables, and even left school by different doors. Interracial dating was rare, and there were two non-school-sponsored dances, the Cotillion and the Ebony Ball, that only highlighted the racial divide. Children separated themselves by race even in places such as Shaker Heights and Montclair, where parents wanted them to mix. Many children, however, had no choice but to separate because their parents moved to the suburbs or put them in private schools. It was both parents and children, therefore, who defeated integration, end quote. So it didn't work. It doesn't work, and anti-chemists need to stop posturing. Even they don't practice what they preach. According to a Harvard research project, by 2004, American schools were just as segregated as they were in 1969, the year after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And this shouldn't surprise us. When not coerced at gunpoint, people self-segregate. Churches are still segregated. Funeral homes are segregated more so than churches. Retirement homes are segregated. Americans prefer doctors and car salesmen of their own race. It's not chemists who need to be manufactured, but anti-chemists. Here's a factoid for anti-chemist gospel thumpers. Missiologist Donald Anderson McGavran noted long ago that, quote, men like to become Christians without crossing racial, linguistic, or class barriers, end quote. Taylor notes that those churches that followed his advice to build congregations as homogeneous units have the largest congregations. He notes that Billy Graham tried to make sure that everyone who responded to his altar calls was met by someone of the same race. Race matters. Well, maybe anti-kinists don't care about the testimonies of their own kin, but perhaps they'll listen to others. Studies discovered that the majority of whites, Hispanics, blacks, and Asians think that people are happier when segregated. Blacks don't like living among us. Black law professor Alex Johnson of the University of Virginia said that the Brown ruling was a mistake and that school integration destroyed the black cultural community. A black sociology professor from the University of California at Berkeley says that integration, quote, has not been approached or achieved because nobody wants it. Blacks have always wanted to associate with themselves, end quote. We know Mexicans don't like blacks, and they sure don't vote for white Republicans. What about American Indians? Taylor writes, One tribal leader explained that parents did not trust public schools that have tried to turn Indian children into white people. Which anti-kinist out there doesn't hear the cries of blacks, Mexicans, and Indians to be left alone to their own people, culture, and customs? Anti-kinists are anti-white. Jared Taylor concludes his chapter, Contact theory was wrong. Integration does not result in yet more integration but we never abandon it. This is a crucial part of the history of our anti-Kinist brothers. Using state power, Marxist elites attacked the minds of our moms and dads, and had this not happened, there'd likely be no anti-Kinists. We've only looked at the Marxist forces behind public education, but we could discuss how media, entertainment, and even immigration policy were manipulated as well in order to bring about an unnatural, multiracial nation that nobody wants. Which reminds me of one last historical case for kinism, namely that there's no history of any successful multicultural nation. America is part of the pilot project, and we're failing, as we'll look at in the next podcast, Is Kinism Practical? 
If you're new to kinism and this podcast is making sense, then you're presently swallowing the red pill and you can handle a written addendum that I'll include at the Tribal Theocrat post where you found this podcast. It will provide further information about the Marxist elites I mentioned. The takeaway here is that the anti-kinist beliefs of our anti-kinist brothers were engineered by the same forces that attack the Christian family in other ways. You're all haters for not tolerating other religions, bigots for not allowing for alternative sexual lifestyles, racists for not appreciating affirmative action and favoring open borders, chauvinists for believing that men are the heads of their own households, etc., etc. The attack on kinism is part of the same package of hatred of the Christian family. It's the same liberal enemy assaulting the same faith and same people, white Christians. So be consistent and protect your racial identity just as you protect your faith. Thank you.